Welcome to Lectio Continua, a podcast of Grace OPC in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I'm your host, Pastor Brian DeYoung. This is Lectio Continua Acts, Episode 5. One of the benefits of Lectio Continua preaching is the ability to follow the contours of the Word of God in all of the places that it takes you. A number of years ago, I was shopping for a new lawnmower, and certain models of expensive lawnmowers advertised the fact that they followed the contour of your lawn. So if there was a small ridge or rise in the grass, the lawnmower would adjust for that change in elevation. And if there was a low spot, it would again adjust appropriately. And in that way, I suppose, you would avoid the spots where the grass was left far too long and the other spots where it was scalped or cut way too short. Lectio Continua Preaching follows the contours of the text. It doesn't stop and force the text into some abnormal configuration that is unnatural to the passage, but rather it emphasizes what the text emphasizes. It highlights what the passage is highlighting, and it also neglects things that the passage neglects. This leaves both preacher and hearer to wrestle with the question, what does the Holy Spirit want me to learn from this particular passage? It also allows the preacher to stop at a spot and to explore that spot more deeply to see what the text is bringing to our collective attention. That's what I'm trying to do in the sermon that you're about to hear. We are faced in this passage with a true villain, an evil man, Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. We pause to study this man and his background. We also see how his actions fulfilled prophecy. And then we drill down into the very significant theological question of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And so now, the son of perdition. We turn this morning in the Old Testament to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is one of the least favorite psalms of many people. In fact, this psalm gets a lot of abuse because it contains imprecatory statements against God's enemies. And some Christians just cannot stand imprecatory statements. But this psalm is all about Christ and Christ's sufferings. And so it should be one of our most beloved psalms, not one of the most reviled. So listen for Christ as I read. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore." 
O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire, and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. 
Now, in the middle of the imprecations there, in verse 25, there's a very significant verse. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. And that verse is quoted in our passage in in Acts chapter 1. So let's turn to Acts chapter 1. This morning we are reading and focusing on verses 15 through 20. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out." And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we come to you thankful for your word and all it contains. And now by your spirit, give us the truth that we might live in the light of your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It goes without saying that some people are better known than others. You probably know much more about Abraham Lincoln than you do about Edward Mybridge, even though they lived about the same time. Edward Mybridge was a British man who was a photographer in California. You probably didn't know that. You probably don't care about that. But you know Abraham Lincoln. Oh, yes, we all know Abraham Lincoln. And so some people are just better known than others. And the same thing could be said about the apostles. We are well acquainted with Peter and John. And we know a few things about Andrew and Matthew. But we know very little about Simon the Zealot or Judas the son of James. Peter was certainly more prominent than the other Judas, not Iscariot, as he is sometimes called. I really can't remember reading anything particularly about this Simon, except for that he was a zealot. So there are levels of notoriety, some more famous than others. But there was one apostle who was notorious. He was infamous. His name was Judas Iscariot. Judas the traitor, the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss. His name has become a byword. But although Judas Iscariot has pretty high name recognition in the Christian community, I think that his actual story is not so well known to most Christians. And this morning, Judas comes into our field of vision one last time. 
So I want to begin this morning by looking in some depth at the story of Judas Iscariot. Then we're going to look at several fulfillments and finish with sovereignty and responsibility. The early history of Judas is sketchy at best. From John's Gospel, we learn that his father's name was Simon Iscariot. And that second word, Iscariot, is probably not a family name, but is thought to be a Greek version of a Hebrew term which means son of Kirioth. And so this would designate the hometown of the family. They came from Kirioth, which was a small town in Judea. We do not know when Judas first encountered Jesus or what drew him into that circle of followers of Christ. In Luke 6, he is there among the disciples whom Jesus called together by the uh, grace to designate them. And then from among that group, he chose 12 and he named them apostles. Judas's name is in that early list of apostles and in all of the subsequent lists. With the other apostles, he was sent forth by Jesus to preach the good news. He was also present throughout Jesus' ministry. He witnessed Jesus' miracles. He heard the preaching and teaching of Christ. Judas was apparently considered to be trustworthy as he became the treasurer for the group. I think it goes without saying, you don't give someone the role of treasurer if you don't trust them. And so at the time when this decision was made, none of the others realized that Judas was a thief. They didn't seem to see that he was frequently in the habit of pilfering the money box. They just trusted him. And neither did they suspect him of being a traitor, even though Jesus pretty clearly pointed him out during the Last Supper. But all was not well with Judas. Though outwardly he was looking like a faithful follower of Christ, Judas was never a Christian. He was not a believer. We learn in Luke 22 that Satan entered into Judas and that Satan planted the idea in Judas's mind to betray Jesus for money. Clearly, Judas operated under Satan's influence. He was in cahoots with the devil himself. Judas was the one who initiated discussions with the chief priests and the elders about how to betray Jesus into their hands. And when money was offered for the betrayal, Judas consented to their plan and he began looking for an opening where he might deliver Jesus to them. On that fateful night, Judas led the soldiers out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knew that he would find the Lord. Judas approached Jesus 
and he greeted him with a kiss, which was the agreed-upon signal to the soldiers. But as he watched Jesus being arrested and led away, a tiny seed of remorse began to sprout and grow in Judas's mind and heart. Deep down, Judas knew that Jesus was innocent. Furthermore, the 30 pieces of silver began to burn a hole in Judas's soul. In his remorse, he attempted to undo the damage he had done, but the Jewish leaders would simply not take that money back. So Judas threw it into the temple sanctuary, and he departed in despair. Going out, he found a place where he could commit his final crime as he hanged himself to death. Meanwhile, the chief priests gathered the money, and they determined to use it to buy a field in Judas's name. This field happened to be the very place where Judas committed suicide. Now, at this point in the story, there's a bit of confusion, at least apparent confusion, between Matthew's account of Judas's death and Luke's version here in Acts 1. Matthew pictures Judas hanging himself, and Luke says that Judas fell headlong and burst open in the middle. And so some will ask, how can both of those be accurate? I think the best explanation is that both are clearly true. Judas hung himself, died, and began decomposing in the hot sun. Somehow or other, sooner or later, the rope either broke or was cut. The corpse fell down, probably striking some sharp object on its way, and the bloated corpse burst open with his intestines spilling out all over the ground. How gruesome, how bloody, and how disgusting. What an end, a horrible end for this man, Judas Iscariot. Now, the reason that Luke records these details is not to scandalize his readers or to provide gory details for the sake of gory details, but rather to explain why they had to choose another apostle to join the apostolic circle. In a sense, it explains to later generations in the church why Matthias was named among the twelve though he was not originally an apostle. And you can almost envision the discussion. Wait a minute, Matthias? Why is he an apostle? I'm looking back into the records, and I don't see his name listed there. How did he get to be an apostle? Well, Luke says, here's the story. This explains Matthias's presence. But there are deeper things going on, too several fulfillments which need to be considered. P. 
Peter begins addressing this there in verse 16 when he says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then Peter goes on and specifically quotes the two passages that he had in mind in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So the first of those is from Psalm 69, verse 25, which we just read. And the second of those quotations comes from Psalm 109, verse 8. So the first fulfillment is the fulfillment of Scripture. In this statement, Luke gives us a succinct reminder of the concept of plenary verbal inspiration. The Holy Spirit is the originator of this message. It is the Holy Spirit's message. He is the one who is foretelling the events that are under consideration here. And we must always remember, Scripture comes to us from its primary author, the Holy Spirit of God. Secondly, the human instrument used by the Holy Spirit is David. This predictive prophecy came by the mouth of David. Thus, the Spirit employs David to speak these words concerning Judas. It's worth noting that King David lived a full thousand years before Judas was born. And thus, the Spirit is prompting David to speak and write about events in the very distant future. Events that David himself would never see. Now, just to realize how spectacular this is, how would you feel about predicting events that are not going to happen for another thousand years? suggesting some specific individual might do a particular thing a thousand years from now. I mean, we can hardly guess what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. Speculate about a thousand years forward? It's incredible. And so King David is clearly speaking by the Spirit as he predicts these events that would come long after David was dead and gone. Specifically, he says that Judas's homestead would be made desolate and no one would dwell in it. This is clearly foretelling Judas's death and disgrace. He is turned out of his home. He is sent down to death. He is delivered to hell. As Jesus himself said in Matthew 14, it would have been good if Judas had never been born. To be born to be this wretched betrayer, to end up in hell, what a horrible, horrible thing. Judas was a son of perdition. He was doomed and destined for hell. And so 
this is the only one that Jesus had under his care that would be lost, the son of perdition. There's also, in that reference to Psalm 109, a specific prediction that Judas's official place as an apostle would be removed and another would take over his apostleship. Matthias and his appointment was according to God's long-announced plan. And so by Judas's self-imposed death, his self-murder, the scriptures are fulfilled. Judas was cast out. His place in the apostolic circle was vacant until Matthias could replace him. And so there is the fulfillment of scripture, but on an even deeper level, there are clear indications regarding the fulfillment of God's holy will, his secret and providential plan. So we should not think that this is merely the fulfillment of words written in the scripture. It is that, but it is also the fulfillment of God's eternal purposes, his secret will, the things determined in the secret counsels of the triune God from eternity past. So all that Judas did was part of God's plan. It only became apparent as it unfolded in history, but it was always and forever God's will. So nothing that happened between Judas and Jesus took God by surprise, not at all. Nor was it in any way contrary to God's holy intentions. And this brings up the knotty problem of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and how these two relate. A careful examination of the text leads us to conclude that Judas was clearly a responsible moral agent who is judged and punished for the acts that he freely chose to do. Judas cannot play the victim card as if he were some helpless puppet who is forced by an evil and capricious deity to do things he didn't really desire to do. But Judas, in fact, did all that he wanted. And at every point, Judas is responsible for Judas. Judas willingly became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. No one forced him to do that. No one compelled him to do that. God didn't make him do that against his better judgment. Judas did it because he wanted to be a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Judas accepted money that was being offered to him, and Judas consented freely to their wicked plan. And then Judas went out and began looking for ways to betray the master. Nobody forced Judas to do these things. Nobody coerced Judas into any of this activity. It was all done very willingly on Judas's part. And this really speaks to a, a growing trend in our society in our day for people to shirk their own responsibility for their own choices. I can't help myself. That's just the way God made me. 
That's a very common argument. That argument was in the news this week with a particular political candidate. God's making me do the things I'm doing, so I have no responsibility. I feel no guilt, and it is illegitimate for anyone to blame me for anything I'm doing. We are becoming a victim culture where people will not accept responsibility for their own actions. And that's a very serious shift away from a mature, wise, rational culture to an evil culture who is constantly trying to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and avoid their own personal responsibility. But people today make choices because they want to make choices. They do things because they want to do those things. And they need to own their responsibility and face their responsibility. If Judas were not a free moral agent, choosing to act according to his nature and utilizing his own will in making the choices he made then I think it would be unjust for God to judge him and to condemn him. How could God righteously condemn Judas to eternal damnation if God forced Judas to do what Judas himself was unwilling to do? And so God's justice is predicated upon the willing part that Judas took in this whole affair. Judas was responsible, God holds him accountable. And if Judas is really, truly not responsible, then how can God righteously hold him accountable? Now please know that this is the consistent teaching of Calvinism. We, as Calvinists, do not believe that God is sovereign and therefore that man is not responsible for his sinful choices. The denial of human responsibility may be hyper-Calvinism, but it is not true Calvinism. John Calvin never denied human responsibility in favor of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Calvin didn't see it as an either-or choice. Either God is sovereign or man is responsible. Calvin clearly held men accountable for the choices that they made. And whatever you think of the story of Servetus, the story of Servetus should at least show that Calvin held men responsible for the choice they made. Servetus chose to write some very, very wicked things. And Calvin tried to correct him. Servetus wouldn't be corrected. Servetus continued being a blasphemer and a heretic. And even when he was condemned by the city council, Calvin was still being merciful and yet holding him accountable. <laughs> Calvin believed and taught what the scriptures teach. Human beings are responsible for the actions that they take. And we as faithful 
Bible-believing Christians need to hold people responsible. And when they make choices, when they say things, when they do things, they need to be held accountable to those things. And it simply does no good to let them wiggle off the hook and say, well, I'm really not responsible. I'm just a victim. I was taken out of, out of context. I never really meant that. No, people have to be held accountable because God says we are free moral agents making real choices and we are responsible for the choices we make. So later on this morning, you're going to go through the line and you're going to make choices. And maybe you would like some of the mashed potatoes. Maybe you're going to choose a salad. Maybe you're going to just camp out at the dessert table. Whatever's on your plate is there because you put it on your plate. And nobody's going to stand in line and dish stuff out to you. You get to choose. And you're responsible for your choices. So it is with life. The things we do are the things we do because we wanted to do them and we chose to do them. That's human responsibility. But it's also true that God is sovereign and that God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. He even ordained Judas's base treachery of Jesus. Yet God is not the author of sin and can never be charged with wrongdoing. You've probably heard me say this before. I think it bears repeating because it says it so well. God uses sin sinlessly. He takes the evil actions of sinful men and he uses them to accomplish his purposes. It's what Judas tells his brothers. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. And so Luke is bringing this to our attention here this morning in recording these events as he does. At the same time that Luke is clearly portraying Judas as a free moral agent... He also says that the Holy Spirit foretold these things through the mouth of David a thousand years prior. So God is behind these events, and yet God is not the author of sin. He is not responsible for the sins committed in this whole affair. This will not be the only time that this topic will be brought before us in the book of Acts. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, verse 23, he says this, This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now notice the very clear assignment of responsibility. You nailed him to a cross. That was the choice of the Jews. They were responsible for putting him to death. And yet this was all done by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God is sovereign. 
And God has a predetermined plan. Then again, in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, the apostles are heard praying, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So, in this particular case, they're naming names. Herod, the king, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, meaning the Roman soldiers, and the peoples of Israel. And they are the ones who crucified Jesus. Yet they were doing whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. And so, human responsibility and divine sovereignty go together hand in hand. So as Luke tells the story of the early church, he is also grappling with one of the biggest theological and philosophical issues that ever faces the world. The question of who is in charge, who is responsible. If God is sovereign, what then does that say about man's responsibility? And if man is responsible, what does that tell us about God's sovereignty? How do these two concepts relate and interact. I am confident that I cannot this morning untie this Gordian knot, but let me at least leave you with some good counsel based on this passage and also from our Westminster Confession. So if you are asked, is God sovereign? Your answer should be, yes, God is sovereign. And if you are then asked, is man responsible, your response should be, yes, yes, man is responsible. The scripture teaches both of these ideas. Sometimes it teaches them together in the same breath. There is no contradiction between these two affirmations. You can say both without being schizophrenic. <laughs> and if you are pressed even further, if you are pushed hard to somehow reconcile your two affirmations, here's what you can say. God is clearly not the author of sin, nor does God violate the will of his creatures. God, in his sovereignty, establishes human responsibility. He does not take it away. So I believe both. I believe they are both consistent. God does not violate the will of his creatures. He does not somehow become the author of sin. His sovereignty establishes human responsibility. And all of this basically can be put into a question form, a rhetorical question. If God is not sovereign, to whom is man responsible? 
to himself? No. To his fellow creatures? Well, why would that be? There's got to be some sovereign authority to be responsible to. So even the language of human responsibility suggests you've got to be responsible to someone. Someone greater than yourself. Someone outside of yourself. And the teaching of Scripture from start to finish is that God in His sovereignty establishes human responsibility and holds men responsible. Just take the Garden of Eden. God said to Adam and Eve, I've made this whole place, and I've given all these trees to you, all the fruit of those trees. There's one tree you may touch, one tree you may not eat from. Everything else is completely yours, but not that one tree. So he is establishing their responsibility. And what do Adam and Eve do? They go out. Eve listens to Satan. She takes the fruit. She eats it. She gives it to her husband. He eats it. And they sin. And then God comes looking for them. And they are hiding in the trees because they knew he was coming to hold them responsible. And he asks them some hard questions. Where are you? What have you done? Who told you you were naked? And he holds man responsible because he sovereignly established human responsibility. I know this is a huge intellectual problem for a lot of people and that many Christians feel forced to choose one or the other. Either they will affirm God's sovereignty or they will affirm human responsibility. Just believe what the Bible teaches consistently. Man is responsible and God is sovereign. And if somehow that doesn't fully compute and connect in our creaturely brains, that's okay. We don't have to understand absolutely everything. We're not God. We do not have infinite understanding of all things. And in our creatureliness, we can simply be believers who believe what the Bible teaches. That God is sovereign, and that all men are responsible. And that God will one day hold all men responsible for those actions that they have freely chosen. And I think that gets us to a much safer place. If we are feeling like we have got to somehow resolve this debate of the ages between theologians and philosophers, at some point we're just going to crash alongside of the road and say, I can't do it. But if instead we're just simple believers who say, I believe what God has taught us in the scriptures, and I'm living my life as a responsible human being, answerable to the sovereign Lord, that's okay. That's a life I can live. And by God's grace, that is the place I will inhabit. Not getting sucked into philosophical disputing, but just simply 
believing and following the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are sovereign and that you hold us accountable and responsible for the choices we make. We thank you that you're a God of mercy and grace, that you show your favor to us, and that you help us even in our weakness and our confusion. So Lord, bless us and help us as we think on these things to be settled in our own hearts and minds before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.